0: G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. Age Abuse and Justice started as short videos published on YouTube. I did 15 cases in video format, but it took much longer to record and edit, so gradually I eased out of videos to focus on the podcast. It also allowed me to do cases in more detail. I'm now adding the audio from those video recordings to be available on the podcast channel as well. Please excuse the bad audio, these are made from when I was first learning how to use this equipment, so it gets pretty dicey. So this is one of those video recordings. The videos are still available on YouTube if you'd like to check them out. You can search for Age Abuse and Justice, or you could look on the New South Wales Legal Aid podcast channel. But I'll also include the links for this case in the notes below. So onto the case. Sometimes it's only after the older person has died that we find out that they were the subject of elder abuse. In particular, financial abuse may only be discovered when the executor looks after the estate, finds that assets and property are missing. This is one of those cases. John Watson had four children, Michael, Suzanne, Christopher and Peter. In 1991, Christopher and Suzanne moved in with their parents to provide them with care and assistance. In 1993 John's wife died and he moved into a nursing home and in July of that year he did a power of attorney and a will. Under the will it said that Christopher and Suzanne could continue to live in the family home in Epping as long as they liked and when they moved out the property was to be sold and divided equally among the four children. John lived in the nursing home from 1993 until his death in 1999. During that time he developed dementia. Suzanne continued to live in the family home until 1996 when she moved out to live with her boyfriend and Christopher continued to live there. In April 1996, Christopher used the power of attorney to transfer $55,000 from his father's father's bank account to his own. When asked to explain the transaction, Christopher said it had been repayment for a loan that he had given his parents back in the 1990s. However, he was unable to explain why his parents needed the money how much he had loaned them, and if there was any terms of the loan, such as when it was to be repaid. On 9th of October 1997, Christopher used the power of attorney again, this time to transfer the family home to himself for one dollar. It was only after John's death that the other three children found out what Christopher had done and initiated court proceedings in order to get the money and the house brought back into the estate. Christopher argued that He had transferred the house with his father's consent and knowledge. However, there was evidence that after his father's death, Christopher had spoken to a solicitor and had told the solicitor that the transfer was in order to secure his father's pension, that he acknowledged the property was still part of the estate and that he would transfer it to the estate as soon as the estate paid him back the stamp duty and legal cost he had incurred. However, these court proceedings came three years after his father's death and he has still done nothing to transfer the house back. There was no evidence of John's mental capacity at the time of the transfer. So there was no evidence to show that John did not have the capacity to consent to it. So the court looked to a different avenue. They looked at the method of the transactions, which was using the power of attorney. Being appointed as John's attorney, Christopher had a fiduciary duty towards his father. What do I mean by fiduciary duty? It's basically that you have a duty and an obligation to put the other person's interest before your own. In this case, Christopher had obligation to act in his father's benefit even to his own detriment. John's will was dated five days after the power of attorney and the courts took this to mean that the Power given to the attorney was subject to the terms of the will, meaning that John intended his attorney to abide by the conditions of the will, which was that his estate was to be divided equally between the four children. Christopher, in transferring the money and the house to himself, had gone against those wishes as set out in the will, and in doing so had breached his duty as attorney. The court held that Christopher held the $55,000 in and interest on it on trust for the estate, that he held the house on trust for the estate, and that he was required to transfer back into the estate to be distributed in accordance with the will. He was also required to pay his sibling's legal cost. Two key elements of this case I kind of want you to think about is first that this abuse was only discovered after John's death. And it was up to the executors of his estate to fight to rectify the matter. And one of the key hindrances of that is that you don't have John there to give evidence. So John isn't able to say whether he authorised Christopher to do those transactions. The second element I want you to consider is that the court ordered the money in the house be transferred back into the estate which means it's going to be distributed in accordance with the will, which divides everything equally amongst the four children, which means Christopher is going to get one-fourth of everything. So but to some people that might not seem like a sufficient punishment, that he's caused his siblings all of these legal problems, that he in effect stole from his father while his father was still alive, and yet he's still going to get his share of the estate. Uh, yes, he was required to pay his siblings legal fees, but that might just be his punishment for making them go through the legal proceedings in the first place. There have been some arguments that purely on an academic level at this stage, that say where someone has committed this kind of financial abuse of an older person they shouldn't be allowed to then benefit from the estate that they should in effect be waiving their right to their inheritance it's still theoretical at this stage Um, having exposure to a lot of cases like these I, I am for it I do see that it would be a huge deterrent that people would be less likely to do these kind of dodgy dealings if they thought that they were going to lose their inheritance. But at this stage, it's just an idea. So that was my case. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll join me for the next one.